on us. Good morning. So I'd like to share with you something I'd never encountered before. It's a, uh, a sutta from the Pali Canon, which is, I think, very, very relevant to what we're doing here. It's the Sudha, Sudha Sutta, the Cook, the Cook Sutta, the Cook Discourse. It's very short. I won't read the whole thing. Um, but it's a very, very, to my mind, just a very nice parable or metaphor. And I will paraphrase a good deal of it, and then I'll, I'll, I will read verbatim the part that's most directly relevant to our practice here. So it's the Cook, the Cook Discourse. And in this discourse, the Buddha gives a very simple parable, and that is of a, of a cook who's preparing a, major, a main meal for a king or a king's minister. Uh, but the foolish, inexperienced cook doesn't take into account what the, cook, the king or the king's minister really likes in terms of you know, the kind of flavors and so forth. So not taking that into account, then the cook cooks up a meal, um, but it's not what the king wanted, and therefore the cook does not get uh, food, clothing, he does not get good payment because he did not satisfy the king. And why? Because he did not acquire the sign of the king. I think, I'm not even going to ask, but I assume everybody has seen or at least knows about the, the, the film Avatar. You remember one of those very touching moments when it says, I see you? Maybe the most touching in the movie. It was very, very nice. It was really Dharma. I see you. Well, I'm just drawing from that. And that is the cook did not see the king. He did not see what would the king really like, what would satisfy him, what would truly please him. And as a result, then he was not rewarded. Right? And so, but he didn't, but he used that term, he didn't see the sign of the king. He didn't see him, he didn't get him. He didn't see what he truly wanted, right? So then the, the Buddha says, that this is an analogy, obviously, and so then the Buddha says, and here I quote, it's my translation, but I think it's very faithful. Uh, in the same way, there are cases where a foolish, inexperienced, unskillful monk remains focused on the body as the fo- body, feelings as feelings, the mind as the mind, phenomena as phenomena, four applications of mindfulness, ardent, introspective, and mindful, putting aside attachment and disappointment regarding the world. This is a very classic kind of sequence there. You find it also in the Prajapanamita Sutras. Same. As he remains thus focused on the body as the body, his mind does not become concentrated. His defilements are not abandoned. He does not take note of that fact. As a result, he does not abide in happiness here and now, nor with mindfulness and introspection. Why is that? Because the unwise, inexperienced, unskillful monk has not acquired the sign of his own mind. Interesting, yeah? And then he gives the, and then he just turns this right around. I think once again I need to do a little typo, so don't post this just yet, uh, Claudio. Um, just a typo. And then he and then he just flips it around in a very straightforward way. And then and then there's a skillful, skillful cook who does really attend to what the king wants. He prepares the meal, and then he's well, well rewarded. And so just exactly the opposite. In the same way, there are cases where a wise, experienced, skillful monk remains focused on the body as the body. In other words, vipassana practice, right? The body as the body, feelings as feelings, the mind as the mind, phenomena as phenomena, ardent, introspective, and mindful, putting aside attachment and disappointment regarding the world, as he thus remains mindful of phenomena as phenomena. His mind becomes concentrated. His defilements are abandoned. He takes note of that fact. As a result, he abides in happiness here and now and is mindful and and introspective as well. Why is that? 
because the wise, experienced, skillful monk has acquired the sign of his own mind. So clearly it's open to interpretation, but I'm going to take a shot at it. I would suggest that the sign of the mind, like the counterpart sign for the earth element and so forth, is that from which the mind, as we experience it, emerges. So I've suggested this hypothesis before. In the Pali terminology, it would be the bhavanga. That brightly shiny mind, which is by nature luminous and pure, but adventitiously becomes obscured, and then is not obscured. But the crucial point here, and we remember it from an earlier citation, it is this brightly shining mind that is the source of our motivation to seek a path to find liberation and so forth. Remember that? Remember that? I think very significant. And so one may, of course, practice vipassana, that is, for applications of mindfulness, or anything else, without having acquired the sign of one's own mind, without tap in, tapping into, tapping into the depths of one's soul, tapping into one's heart's desire, tapping into the deepest motivation that is already there, not something you learn from Buddhism or Christianity or modern psychology. Tapping into the bhavanga, that stem consciousness, which is not yet differentiated as human, animal, preta, deva, and so forth. When we consider the range of sentient beings across the whole bandwidth within the Buddhist worldview, but also the range of just human beings, you know, it's a tremendous variety of what, you know, if you did a poll, just ask just in Italy, what do you want? What would really make you happy? You definitely get a lot of different answers. And then go to different countries, ask children, ask old people, ask men, ask women, and so forth. You're going to get a lot of answers, let alone if you could interview dogs and earthworms and pretas and, and you know, devas and so forth, and people in the form realm and the formless realm, you can get a lot of different you know, answers to what do you want. But all of those ancient beings, when they come out of their configured state, from hell realms up to deva realms, when they, are, when they melt from the configured state, come back, like the yo-yo coming back to the palm, after going out to all these different rebirths, when it comes back to the palm, and they're back to their the kind of primal ground within samsara, if you could ask that being, who's not yet differentiated as man, woman, human, deva, and so forth, if you could ask that being, what do you want? What do you want? Then you'd get a more primal answer. Right? It won't be a human, it won't be like, I would like a farm. You know, it's going to be something very primal that will be common then. Kind of a stem desire. A common desire that would be equally for, for those in the formless realm, as the hell realm, as anything, every, everything in between. It's going to be a stem desire. I'm just following the logic here. Right? So what is it you really want? And then you find that out by tapping into your depths and you discover the sign of your mind and you discover what truly makes you happy. And you can at least, at, at least here in the Pali Canyon, you can go as far as your substrate consciousness. Of course, if you go beyond that, beyond the, the bandwidth of the Pali Canyon into the Mahayana, into Dzogchen, then of course, keep on cutting, keep on going deeper. Beyond the substrate consciousness, beyond the Bhavanga, go right down to Rikpa and ask Rikpa, what do you want? What's your desire? So this is not the only reference to the sign of the mind, the citta nimitta, citta nimitta. There, there are more at references to this in the Samyutta Nikaya and Gutta Nikaya. There's just one here that I've translated from the Teragata, Teragata, sayings of the elders. And this is very pithy. Having acquired the sign of the mind, 
sensing the savor of solitude. And this would be, remember there's two types of solitude? There's outer solitude, where you simply withdraw yourself from activity, society, the busyness of the world, into solitude, very simple. But remember also the inner solitude. There's two types of solitude, remember? The inner solitude is withdrawing your mind from all mundane concerns. And between the two, that's the more important. So you could, in principle, have a very successful shamatha retreat, for example, in downtown Manhattan, if you had a, you know, a quiet place, a quiet apartment. You could. All around is incredible busyness. But if your mind is in solitude, then even if just the next-door neighbors are completely immersed in hedonic pursuits, you're not. And so, having acquired the sign of the mind, sensing the savor of solitude, taking delight in that, practicing jhana, masterful, mindful, you attain a pleasure that is not hedonic. That's the benefit of, it, of acquiring the sign of the mind. That just strikes me as of the chief shamatha. Nothing beyond that. Because on that basis, then you practice viewing the body as the body and so forth and so on. <coughs> vipassana. But then you're ready, re- really ready to launch into vipassana. But he's saying, and that was with respect to vipassana, the four applications of mindfulness, if you've not acquired the sign of the mind, it's not going to work. That's what he said. Right? Those are the Buddha's words. You will miss the target. So people can practice Vipassana for all kinds of motiv- motivations. you know. But if you haven't tapped into the innermost depths of what you truly want, it can easily be reduced to, the same practice, the same techniques, can be easily reduced to, simply, a very beneficial form of psychotherapy. Which is good, it helps. But it's also missing the whole point. Because you don't need Vipassana. There are a lot of, there are 250 schools of psychotherapy, so I understand and vipassana, devoid of context, with no shamatha, with very little reference to ethics or motivation, becomes, becomes number 251. Got a lot of competition. You know. And how significant is that really, you know, to have just one more? And what on earth does that have to do with Gautama leaving home at the age of 29 and giving up everything? So I think this sign of the mind is something very, very interesting. I think it's substrate consciousness. He's suggesting strongly here, this is the preliminary, this is, this is the really most crucial, proximate, preliminary practice for venturing fully into Vipassana. That then ensures that your Vipassana will be motivated by a truly authentic motivation, which is right intention, authentic intention, one of the Eightfold Noble Path. Because bear in mind, the same techniques can be done for all kinds of reasons. But this ensures at least it will be authentic. It will be renunciation. And of course, if you shift over to expand the bandwidth, then it becomes bodhicitta. Sign of the mind. Also, I mean, I'm just musing here, but I was really moved by this. I hadn't seen it before. But I kind of picked up the fragrance of sign of the mind and saw where it led me. And it led me to the Shuddha Sutta. But also just one other point, and that is, as we, you know, for those of us poor souls in America following this electoral process, um, and see how many different types of desires people have. The American electorate has. I mean, clearly they want different things. And then we look at ISIS, and they, they want different things. And people around the world want different things. It's very easy as we look at what people are doing and who they're voting for and what they're striving to, what they're giving their effort to. It's very easy, frankly to very, feel very little empathy. I think many people, 70% of Americans, are very, very dissatisfied with Trump, with Donald Trump. 
I think they don't empathize with the way he speaks, the way he behaves, what he seems to want. They find it perhaps repugnant, his behavior. And they probably find very little to empathize. Like, he's like, boy, thank goodness I'm not like him. I think maybe 70% of the population are thinking like that. Thank goodness I'm not like him. No empathy. And then very easy in the next breath, then looking down. You know, looking down, he's an inferior person. I'm not saying he is. I'm saying this would naturally follow if you feel, well, thank goodness I'm not like him. That means I'm superior to him, right? So then we have contempt. And likewise, how many people really, really empathize with people who are cutting people's heads off and so forth and so on, and ISIS. Racism all over the place. And there's nothing to empathize with that. I don't want to empathize with racism or terrorism or you know, egotism and being bombastic and megalomaniac and so forth. I don't want to empathize with that. But can we empathize with a person? Not with the motivation. I don't feel with you. I don't want to cut off women's heads. I'm not going to feel with you on that one. Sorry, that's evil. But there's a person there who's right now so delusional that that thinks that's justified. And it's a good thing that this is actually, you know, according to the will of God. So delusional, actually believes that. But when we cut through, so I'm speaking of different desires, right? For the sake of world peace, some people are engaging in acts of terrorism. For the sake of world peace, some people are working for Greenpeace, trying to preserve the natural environment. The same motivation, for the sake of world peace, that we all could be happy, you know? And so we find a lot not to empathize with as we look at the expressions of people's desires, their behavior, the way they speak, and so forth. A lot that we find repugnant, repellent, evil, appalling. But if we can get down there, get down beneath the surface of the acculturation, the configurations, the kind of upbringing, the doctrines, the belief systems, the values that people learn through the course of life, and if we can see you, if you could actually, if any of us could look into the eyes of a member of ISIS who's absolutely committed to that cause, look into the eyes and say, I see you, that would be something, wouldn't it? Not that I see a terrible, repugnant person who should be spend the rest of his life in prison, but I see you on a level where I can empathize. That would be quite something, wouldn't it? And not airy-fairy, nothing ooey-gooey about this. This would be kind of deep. And likewise, Trump, to be able to look into Trump's eyes. I'm not saying he's an evil man, I'm just saying this is a lot of opinion Americans. My, my opinion is kind of irrelevant. But to be able to look in this man's eyes, and I see you, I see someone who's fundamentally like myself, I see where I'm more on the same bandwidth, and I completely empathize with you. Not your opinions, not what you say, not your behavior, a lot of it. But I see you, I empathize with you. That would be quite remarkable. But then how can we tap into that depth of another person if we've not tapped into the depth ourselves? You know, I think if we haven't, then we'll just see the differences. I like this person, don't like this person. And as I mentioned before, Gisher Optin, the first one to sit down with me one-on-one and give me meditation instruction. This is one of the first two meditations he taught me, equanimity. And he said, all the problems in your life are coming from the absence of this. I like you, I don't like you. That's it on that. And I, I told you before, years later, when I was a monk in Switzerland with him, and I mentioned, oh, I like this person. He said, ah, oh, that's not for you. <laughs> I like this person. I don't like this person. That's not for you. Really something, isn't it? So, to tap into the sign of the mind means to come consciously. Here's my interpretation. It's open to interpretation. 
I'm sure some of the people disagree with me and welcome to, but for the time being I'm going to hold to this because it seems very meaningful to me. To come to that state where you're resting in your own nucleus, your relative nucleus, your ground state within samsara, the substrate consciousness explicitly experiencing its bliss, its luminosity, its non-conceptuality. And finding that bliss that is not hedonic, just as described there in the Theragatta. Then how do we get there? What's the most direct route? Because there are many routes. Well, I would suggest within this context right now, there are two. There are two. And one is the, the one that Penjanamaji discussed first and Tsongkhaban refers to explicitly, and that is turn your awareness right in upon the sheer luminosity and sheer cognizance of your own awareness. Just follow right in upon your own awareness by way of its distinctive characteristics. Do not add anything to it. Keep it simple, and that's it. Write that. And following that fragrance, following that fragrance of luminosity and cognizance, which you can experience today, that's not an attainment later on. Your mind is already luminous and clear. So there's no reason why you can't identify that. Then that's the fragrance. Just follow that. Keep it simple. Keep it real simple. Just in, withdraw from all appearances and invert your awareness right in upon the sheer clarity, the, luminous, the luminosity, the brightness of your awareness, that which illuminates, and the experience of knowing. And just rest there until you're home. So that's one method. Very, straight, very straightforward. So Tsongkhapa said all he needed, he gave like just the pith instruction, the bullet point, without elaborating on the practice at all. Focus on the sheer luminosity, the sheer cognizance of awareness, and that's what he had to say. And that's actually, that's sufficient. Right? Now the other one, of course, is we are attending for, as if from afar to the thoughts, images, various things that appear in the space of the mind. We, there's a directionality. We are attending to the space and whatever arises within it. We follow that practice, you're pretty familiar with already. Over time, the plane, the plane of the mind becomes less and less populated until eventually it's just a sheer vacuity. All of your senses have imploded, your mind has gone silent, your mind has disappeared, you invert your awareness away from the substrate into the substrate consciousness, welcome home. That was that. Okay, that's the second method. Now, a final point that occurred to me because I'd like to give you a handle when I said I don't have a technique for the, the very legitimate question that's come up from a number of you. And that is when you're resting in this utter simplicity of awareness of awareness, how do you know whether you're just sitting there with a blank mind, which means you could be cultivating stupor, which leads to becoming stupid, as you well know, you could be doing that, or you could be practicing authentically, which will lead to the substrate consciousness, which will be this, you know, the on-ramp to vipassana and the freeway to enlightenment. So that's a big difference. Tweak it one way, it goes to stupor and stupidity, and tweak it another way, it goes to awakening. So that's kind of a, an important distinction to be able to make, and it is subtle. So it occurred to me, I can give you a handle. I'll give you two handles. And that is when you're attending the space of the mind, okay, you're doing settling the mind, it's natural state, got it? You're attending to the space of the mind, whatever arises. But on occasion, you can't see whether anything's arising. Right? It's, it's intervals. In it. No, I'm not getting no signal. Just space of the mind. So when you're resting there during intervals, and sometimes as you go more deeply into the practice, those intervals will get longer. Right? You just don't pick up anything. You are attending. How do you know whether you're actually ascertaining the space of the mind? 
whether you're on target ascertaining the target, the space of the mind and its contents, how do you know whether you're doing that or just sitting there like a deer staring into the headlights, spacing out, cultivating once again stupor. Big difference. I can tell you how. You ready? So you might want to remember it because I think this is actually useful. Here's how. How can you test yourself? And that, and here's how. It's a, it's a test, like an exam at the end of a, of, of a course. As you're attending there, and for the time being you're not seeing any events arising in the space of the mind, if an event arises, whatever it is, thought, image, whatever, something appearing to you, as soon as that event arises, if you're spot on, you're already there. We say, Johnny on the spot, okay, in American English. You're, you're already there where it's coming up, like the cat staring at the mouse hole. As soon as the, the mouse little whiskers come out, the cat sees it. Not later, okay? If that's the case, if you're so spot on that as soon as the thought or an image comes, some appearance comes, you're right there already. You don't have to pull your attention back. Then you were there before it happened. You were cognizant. You were sustaining cognizance. And that's the indicator of it. When something did come up, you immediately cognize it. If you cognize it only seconds later, that means you're spacing out, you're dull, or you're wandering. Okay? So you have a criterion then. Now, but how about this one, where you're not attending the space of the mind, you're withdrawing from all appearances, you're just attending to the sheer luminosity, sheer cognizance of your own awareness. How do you know now whether you're spacing out or spacing in, or whether you're sustaining flow cognizance and knowing the experience of knowing? And here's the handle. But I think if you th- pause for a moment, you'd figure it out yourself at this point. There you are resting and just being aware of being aware. Or maybe you're just spacing out, or spacing in, just sitting in there with blank mind. How do you know? Here's the test. As soon as this objective impulse comes up, a thought, a desire, an emotion, any subjective impulse comes up. If as soon as it comes up, you get it. Like that fast. You're right there. Then you are on the mark. Then you're on the mark. If you learn about it only, you know, seconds later, oh, my mind was on it. Oh, I say I, I want this. Oh, I'm feeling this. Later, that means during that interval, you're not on target. And then you have to pull yourself back. Okay? So those are criteria. Oh, yeah. So remember the Cook, the cook Sutta. That's a good one. Oh, not so. Let's have a session.
bringing forth your most authentic and meaningful motivation. Settle your body, speech, and mind in the natural states. Just for a couple of minutes, calm the discursive mind with mindfulness of breathing, with counting or without, as you wish.
Now let your eyes be at least partially open. Evenly rest your awareness in the space in front of you, but without focusing on any object, any shape or color, any visual object. Your awareness simply diffused, resting in space without taking even space as its object. And now for a little while, just rest here. Your mind settled in its natural state, not yet put to work, not being directed inwards or outwards, not focusing on this or that, not doing anything, not meditating on anything, simply at rest, mindfully present, in the present moment, sustaining this flow of mindfulness without distraction, without grasping. Appearances in all of the six domains, of course, continue to arise. But don't voluntarily give your attention to any of these appearances. Do not let your attention be snagged and carried away by the appearances or by the emergence of subjective mental impulses. Let it be loose and free free of grasping, and therefore still.
when we are not deliberately focusing our attention on and therefore ascertaining any appearances to the mind or subjective impulses of the mind, when we're just resting in simplicity, simply resting in awareness, Of what are you now aware? We have these two words, luminosity. Having a sense of clarity, brightness, vividness. The ability to illuminate. Can you see the referent? Can you identify? the luminous aspect of the apprehending awareness. It's not something mysterious. It's already evidence, already there in plain sight. You're wide awake. The use of the syllable pe is designed exactly to arouse this luminosity. So I will say it not very loud but very staccato, totally rest, and just let the sound arouse the clarity, luminosity, the clear light of your own awareness. There will, no be, there will not be any big startle here, I'm not here to shock you. Just rest. And in your own experience of being aware, there's something that's already happening, it's also in plain sight. The flow of cognizance of knowing. Can you identify this within your own mind stream? Rest in that knowing of knowing, the cognizance of cognizance, the awareness of being aware.
following the instructions of Padmasambhava in natural liberation, that's introduced into this utter simplicity, a tiny bit of doing, just for a little while, as a temporary measure, to help us not become spaced out. And that is the familiar oscillation. Arouse, invert, focus, concentrate your awareness. Withdrawing it from all appearances and inverting it right in upon the experience of being aware. The sheer luminosity and cognizance of your own awareness. Arouse. And then loosen up, relax. Releasing your awareness into space. Then when you're rested, invert, focus, concentrate. Withdrawing from all appearances right into that which makes appearances possible. Quite intense, going into luminosity itself. And then relax. Set your own rhythm. Rousing and releasing.
you know you're not just spacing out or sitting there with a blank mind if as soon as some thought, desire, emotion arises, you're immediately aware of it, free of grasping. And these subjective impulses arise of their own accord. of grasping, they dissolve of their own accord. They self-arise and self-release very quickly. And then simply rest without doing anything. Rest in self-illuminating, self-knowing awareness, utterly at ease, effortless.
I mentioned earlier, I'm going to take a little, a little quick foray over to the west, actually here, Tuscany. In our mind's eye, uh, that Galileo, as a boy, his family, he was born in Pisa. Family lived in Pisa, but then when he was eight years old, they moved off to Florence, and, uh, which is, I think you know, is not very far from here. And then, not long after that, then his father, who was a musician, wanted to send his, get, his, have a, get his son to have some education. And this was in there in the, what, the 16th century. Uh, the place that a boy or teenager, adolescent, could get education was pretty much monasteries, like in Tibet, until very recently. And so the monastery where his father sent him was the Kamadoli. Kamadoli? Kamadoli? Did I pronounce it right? Kamadoli. Kamadoli? Kamadoli. Thank you. Kamadoli. It sounds much better when you say it. <laughs> it's uh, the Kamadoli Hermitage and Monastery. It was founded way back in the 11th century. So it was already like 500 years old by the time he was there. It's quite a famous and quite an extraordinary hermitage. It's still there and it's still operative, and I've seen only photos. I tried to get there last year, and the person who was driving me lost our way, and we never got there, so <laughs> I didn't get to see it. But Kamaldoli, Kamaldoli. Uh, and so he was there through his, until he was ready for college. And as I mentioned before, he wanted to stay. In the Christian tradition, as I've, I've uh, detailed in my book, uh, Mind and the Balance, uh, going back to the, oh, the um, Greek Greek Orthodox contemplatives in the 13th century, back to the Desert Fathers, they had a practice of awareness of awareness. It, it doesn't, they don't need a foreign import. It was already there. So just imagine, I'm just being playful here now, but imagine if young Galileo, who, who knows, maybe he was, I don't know what they taught him. The reports are that he really loved it there, he wanted to spend the rest of his life in a contemplative monastery, becoming a contemplative. Right? So who knows, he may have been taught. He could have been taught. Awareness of awareness there. But just imagine that they did. We're just being playful here. Imagine that he did. And imagine that his father wasn't so tight. <laughs> I mean, world history could have been different. It's his father who just said, Son, you want to remain a contemplative? Go for it, kid. And let him stay. And imagine if Galileo had stayed and ascertained the sign of his own mind. I would say one thing, from my perspective, one thing is basically certain. If you've ascertained, if you've achieved shamatha, you've ascertained this bliss that comes from the nature of your own awareness itself, the last thing you'd be interested in would be rolling balls down a ramp <laughs> or wondering whether Jupiter has moons. You say, like, why would anybody care about that? Why look out there? But his father wouldn't pay for it. His father told him to get a job, go to school, become a doctor. And doctor because it paid more than being a mathematician. He had to pay for dowries. He had to pay for his, for his, get his daughters married. It was a big deal back then. But so Galileo turned his attention outwards, and of course he did not invent, but he made his own telescope uh, based on models from, from Holland. Which means that before he directed his telescope and started doing his amazing discoveries, uh, he knew a telescope inside and out. There was probably just no aspect of a telescope he didn't understand. He made it himself. He polished the lenses. He mounted them. He went from an 8-power to a 20-power to a 30-power telescope in his lifespan. 
So he clearly knew telescopes of that, of that you know, level of sophistication of his time. So he knew exactly what he's looking through, which makes really good sense. He would have been a real dumbbell if somebody had just given him one and said, look through this, you'll find a lot of cool things. And he didn't examine what he's looking through to know whether it's a telescope or a kaleidoscope. You'll see very different things, of course. <laughs> so he had good reason to believe that the observations he would make through his telescope would be ones that would actually tell him about the phenomena he was observing. Right. But as far as we know from the records of Galileo's life, while he understood the telescope very well, there's no clear indication he understood the sign of his own mind. So the rest is history. We have now 400 years of this tremendous growth of knowledge of the outside world and tremendous growth of hedonic well-being. A lot of medicine is tremendously helpful. I wouldn't be alive for it. If, without Western medicine, I would have died when I was a kid. Uh, but that 400 years has given us almost nothing for eudaimonia and has left us almost entirely in dark about the nature of the mind. And there are major scientists, and I could quote them, but I won't, that say, do not count, do not rely upon your first-person experience. Do not rely on introspection. Do not rely upon your own perception. This is misleading. You're hallucinating. You're, everything you experience is illusion. Do not rely on your own first-person experience. It's totally unreliable. And what they're saying is, rely only on us, the scientists. Because we're objective, and you are, if you're not a scientist, you're subjective. Very sad. But we don't have to fall there. We don't have to choose. So, by the way, this Kamalruli monastery is just 35 kilometers southeast of Florence. So, it's kind of, if you had a really big arm, it's just a stone's throw away from here. So, this is where it happened. This is where it happened in this incredible environment.